Love that passage. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that passage already, even before it has been preached. It has filled our souls with joy. We ask now, Lord, that the preaching would do justice to this wonderful text. Help us, O Lord, to behold your glorious plan and your power and your grace on us so that we would walk out of here worshiping you with even fuller hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to begin tonight's sermon by reading you some quotes from hopeless men. Hopeless men. Donald A. Crosby, a religious naturalist, said this, There is no justification for life, but also no reason not to live. Those who claim to find meaning in their lives are either dishonest or deluded. In either case, they fail to face up to the harsh reality of the human situations. Macbeth, who's a character by William Shakespeare, said this, Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time, and all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. And then David Hume, a real person, the famous philosopher, said this, But the life of a man is of no greater importance to the universe than that of an oyster. These men are indeed hopeless. Hopelessness is a result of one's worldview. Donald A. Crosby, the guy from the first quote, he lived with a naturalistic worldview, meaning from his perspective, there is no God. And being there no God, there is no kind of any kind of transcendent meaning. Macbeth ends up in the play concluding that life is inherently meaningless and that all actions are futile. And David Hume was skeptical about any kind of universal truth, any kind of objective knowledge. And because he thought you couldn't have any kind of objective truth or universal knowledge, then of course, all morality is relative. And if that's the case, then who is to say that a human being is any more important than an oyster or either of their lives? Ephesians 2.12 rings true about these men. Without hope and without God in the world. Now, can Christians sometimes fall into this line of thinking? Of course, of course we can. I mean, if we were to ask this group, I mean, let me just ask you, right? This is not typically a back and forth during the summer preaching series, but let me ask you a question, yes or no. Is life meaningless? What would you say to that? A resounding no. Praise God you said that. But we don't always think as biblically as we should on a day-to-day basis, right? Especially when emotions are high. So as we go through this world with all of its trials and its tribulations and its temptations, it may be realistically tempting for a Christian to say, why even try? We may be tempted to waver in our faith or become just complacent in it. Our passage provides an answer to this type of what I call Christian nihilism. Okay? Life is full of meaning. Our labor is not in vain. And if what we're going to cover tonight were not true, if it weren't true, then life would in fact be meaningless. It would be hopeless. As a matter of fact, Paul pretty much says that in verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 15. He says this, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. That's what Paul says if, if what we're going to cover tonight is not true. But praise God, we have hope beyond this life. 
And actually, it's not like some ethereal type of existence of spirits floating in clouds playing harps. It's not like that. It's the assurance that we will actually live again and forever. And if we know that we're going to live forever, then we're going to live now with some purpose and moxie. As we go through this passage, we're going to see a problem presented, the answer to that problem, the result of the answer, and how it should cause us to live. So again, we'll see a problem presented, the answer to that problem, the result of the answer, and how it should cause us to live. Let's look at each of those one at a time. Number one, the problem. Here's the problem. We cannot enter the eternal state with these bodies. We cannot enter the eternal state with these bodies. This is in verse 50. But in order for us to more fully grasp the beauty of our passage, Let's just briefly trace Paul's argument throughout this whole chapter in the beginning. First, we get this passage that we often will say uh, in, I think, the beginning of the Lord's Supper, because it it outlines the gospel, right? This is a common way to, to open the Lord's Supper. So in the beginning of chapter 15, he outlines the gospel for us, but he's got a very specific purpose, because included in this gospel is that Christ appeared to many people. He appeared to many people having risen from the dead. And what Paul is doing here is he's answering this false teaching that was spreading around the church in Corinth that there is no such thing as resurrection from the dead. But that's a problem. If it's true that there is no such thing as resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ was raised. And if Christ was not raised, Paul says, then everything that we believe is meaningless. And everything that the apostles preached and now we preach to you is a lie. Christ's resurrection, according to Paul, is logically dependent on whether it's possible for human beings to rise from the dead by the power of God. If they can't rise from the dead, then Christ who was fully God and fully man, has not been raised. And if he hasn't been raised, then we're still in our sins. And not just that, but all of our loved ones who have died in Christ before us, they're just gone forever. But Christ has been raised from the dead, Paul says. And not just that, but Christ was only the first one, right? So by Adam came death. He brought death into the world. By Christ came the resurrection of the dead. All who are in Adam die. All who are in Christ will be made alive. Christ rose first. And when, and when Christ returns, all who belong to him will rise again also, which will result in the consummation of the kingdom of God. If this weren't true, then why, Paul asks, is he risking his life all the time? This idea that saints will not be raised in the end, he repudiates. It is a wicked doctrine that still exists today in the form of what we call full preterism. It is a wicked doctrine that needs to be marked and avoided and dismissed. Paul then launches into a discussion about what kind of body we will have. The answer is five foot six, the perfect height. (laughs) I'm just kidding. The answer is essentially that we're going to die with a body like Adam's and we're going to rise with a body like Christ's after his resurrection, that is. Okay, so we go in to the grave with a body like Adam's, but we will rise with a body like Christ's. And that brings us to our passage, which explains to us the problem. And the problem, again, is that our bodies as they are cannot enter the eternal state. We read this in verse 50. Take a look. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So really what we have here is a two-pronged problem. The first prong is that we're flesh and blood, and then the second prong 
is that we're perishable. But before we look at these, let's consider first what it means in verse 50 to inherit the kingdom of God. To inherit the kingdom of God is talking about receiving and entering into God's eternal kingdom. This is talking about experiencing everlasting life in the presence of God. That's what it means to inherit the kingdom of God. Now you might say, haven't we already inherited the kingdom of God? Don't we have eternal life already? Those are good questions. In a sense, the answer is yes. We already have this inheritance. We are already in the kingdom of God, and we already have eternal life. Romans 14, 17, for example, Romans 14, 17, it talks about, quote, the kingdom of God as a present reality now, about, and it talks about how we should live in the kingdom of God, okay? Colossians 1, 13 says that we have been transferred into the kingdom of of his beloved son, meaning you are in Christ's kingdom now. Jesus said in Luke 17, 21, that the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. John 3, 36 says that if you believe in him, you have eternal life now. So these are present realities for us. But at the same time, scripture speaks of them as future realities. This is both true. It's both present and future. Matthew 25, 34, for example, says this. Matthew 25, 34, this is Jesus. Then the king will say to those on the right, on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So that Jesus is going to say that at the end. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you. 2 Timothy 4, 18 says, Paul is saying, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. That's going to happen at the end. So are we in the kingdom of God now? Yes and no. Yes and no. Jesus reigns all over the earth now and he's putting his enemies under his feet now. But the fullness of his kingdom is yet to come. And we will inherit the kingdom of God in that way, but we cannot inherit it like this. We cannot inherit it the way that we currently are. So then we ask the question, what does it mean to be flesh and blood? And why can't we, why can't flesh and blood inherit the kingdom of God? So flesh and blood is talking about what you're seeing now, right? It's our present mortal existence. Our bodies as they currently are. Our bodies are weak. Our bodies are frail. And they're also imper I'm sorry, they're also perishable, okay? So our bodies are weak and frail. Even the strongest of bodies can't even stay out in the sun for too long. And if our bodies could not survive standing on the surface of the sun, how much less would they be able to survive in the full presence of God who breathed out the sun? Not only are our bodies weak and frail, but they're also perishable. And we could use our imagination and we could imagine that you could have a body, God could somehow make it, that it could stand in the presence of God, but to have an expiration date. The perishability of our bodies makes it impossible for us to receive an imperishable inheritance. The fact that our bodies are perishable makes it impossible for us to receive our imperishable inheritance. You can't have God forever and ever if you yourself don't exist forever and ever. So that's the problem. Our bodies, the way that they are, cannot enter the eternal state. And if we did, our bodies would be burned up immediately. And though conceivably we would still be in the presence of the Lord in spirit, we would still be in a very real sense dead, which is not God's will for us. We'll talk more about that later. 
But even if, let's say, let's say that our current bodies entered into his presence protected, that still would not answer the issue that our bodies are decaying. They are wasting away. These bodies are not designed to last forever. So that presents a problem for us. It would be like winning cruise tickets. You get to the port, you're all packed, you're ready to go, you're excited, but there's only one problem. There's no cruise ship. Similarly, we have been granted access to the eternal state. You have that now if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. But you actually can't inherit it with the bodies that y'all have. But as always, God provides what we need, right? He provides what we need. And therefore, we see, number two, the answer. The answer. We will be transformed. This is in verses 51 through 53, but let's look at verse 51 first. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. What a great word to start this with. Behold. Behold, friends. Behold, brothers and sisters. Here is the answer to our body problem. And in order for us to receive our answer, Paul needs to tell us what he calls a mystery. We've mentioned this before several times. A mystery in the Bible is not like something that we're trying to solve. A mystery is something that was previously hidden but has now been revealed to us by God. That's a mystery in the Bible. But were there any Old Testament hints that we would be resurrected with glorified bodies? In fact, there were. There were, and that's probably why there was a lot of debate among the Pharisees and Sadducees about the resurrection. But check out Job 19, verses 25 through 27. Job 19, 25 through 27. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. A couple more. Isaiah 26, 19. Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. And finally, Daniel 12, verses 2 through 3. Daniel 12, 2 through 3. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So those passages are pointing forward to this mystery revealed because the way that the Lord has been pleased to reveal the truth to his people throughout history is that he didn't just drop everything on Adam and say, Adam, pass this down, right? He progressively revealed truth throughout history and in the old testament many of those concepts were hidden in types and in shadows so when paul says i tell you a mystery he is revealing for us by the inspiration of the holy spirit what was previously hidden so here's the mystery revealed verse 51 we shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed we shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed Sleep in the Bible is often a euphemism uh, for physical death. Euphemism means like a, a nicer word than dying, right? So sleep is a euphemism for physical death. For example, in 1 Kings 2.10, it says that David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. Jesus likewise says of Lazarus after Lazarus had died, which actually caused a little confusion with his disciples, he says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. That's in John 11, verses 11 through 14. So sleep is a euphemism for death. However, some have taken this to mean incorrectly that when we die, our souls become unconscious until the resurrection. This is a false doctrine called 
soul sleep. It's an error. Here are some examples of why we know you don't just sleep until the resurrection. Jesus said in Luke 23, 43, to the thief on the cross, that he would be with Jesus that day in paradise. Paul said he wanted to depart and be with Christ in Philippians 1, verses 21 through 24. Being with Christ, if he departed to be with him, is better than remaining in the flesh. And he also said in 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8, that to be absent from the body is what? To be present with the Lord present with the Lord. So even though the Bible talks about death like it's sleep, it's only a metaphor. We actually won't be asleep. It's just that a human body appears to be sleeping, right, once we're dead. So it's a fitting euphemism. So what Paul is saying here is that not all Christians are going to die physically. Not all Christians will die physically. When Christ returns, there will be some Christians who will be alive. Regardless of whether we're alive or dead, when Christ returns, verse 51 says this, we shall all be changed. We shall all be changed. Changed how? He's about to explain that for us. Verse 52 first explains to us how long it's going to take for this change to take place. Look at verse 52. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. It'll happen in a moment. So right now, what we're experiencing is this long and grueling transformation process that we call sanctification. But the culmination of our transformation into Christ-likeness called glorification will be instantaneous. To emphasize this, Paul adds in verse 52, in the twinkling of an eye, like a twitch of an eye. Just do this real quick. Don't move your head and just look left and right and see how fast your eyes move. It's going to be that fast. It'll be that fast. That's how sudden our change is going to be. And when will that happen? Verse 52, at the last trumpet. So trumpets were used throughout the Bible for communication, for warning, for celebration, even worship or judgment. In this context, the last trumpet is likely the one that signals the consummation of the kingdom. Revelation 11.15 says this. Revelation 11.15. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever. With that trumpet on the last day, verse 52 says, the dead will be raised imperishable. So here it is. Here is the answer to the problem that the perishable cannot inherit the imperishable. The answer is that the dead will be raised imperishable. They'll be raised imperishable. The dead will be given bodies that cannot and will not perish, thanks be to God. But what about those who are alive when he returns? Verse 52, we shall all be changed. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So those who are dead will rise with imperishable bodies, and those who are alive will have their bodies immediately transformed to these imperishable bodies, what good news. And the reason that this is such good news is in verse 53. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. If we would live with God forever, then we need to be imperishable and immortal. We need to be unable to be destroyed we need to be unable to die and that is what he's going to make us when he returns this is good news this is all part of the package of our internal inheritance for our eternal inheritance can only be received 
if we are made able to receive it. God is going to do that for us. Isn't that incredible? Isn't his grace amazing? He has surmounted every problem that we have had. We were dead in our sins, and he solved that problem by giving up his only son, who took on a human body and nature and died on the cross for sinners like us. But that wasn't even our only problem. Our other problem is that we're perishable and mortal. God is going to solve that problem by giving us imperishable and immortal bodies. How wise and how good is our God. There's even more to this awesome story that has been written by God. And namely, it's this, number three. It's the result. Death will finally be destroyed. Death will finally be destroyed. This is in verses 54 to 57. You see, death is still an enemy for us. You realize that, right? Even though you're a Christian, death is still an enemy for you. As a matter of fact, it's right here in this chapter. Verse 26 says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. On one hand, it would be better for us to be dead because we would be with the Lord, which, like Paul says, is far greater than being here in this world. But on the other hand, nobody normally yearns for the process of dying. That's not normal if you want to actually go through death. Death still has a sting. Death still has victory over mortals. Death is scary. And one of the weirdest things, a cognitive dissonance, is when a Christian barely escapes a car crash and says, thank you, God. Because it's kind of like saying, thank you for not bringing me home to you. But we understand that sensation of nearly escaping death. Because in that moment, he mercifully spared you from the sting of death. But we have good news. Death will, on that day, finally be destroyed. Verse 54 says this, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. So the perishable must put on the imperishable. The mortal must put on immortality. And when that happens, the moment that it happens, not a thousand years later, it fulfills prophecy. Now what Paul says here is not a direct quote, but it's definitely correct when he says, death is swallowed up in victory. Isaiah 25.8, which he's alluding to, says this, He, God, will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. Oh yes, death will be swallowed up in victory. The idea is that death is going to be completely consumed. It's going to be completely destroyed, overcome and eliminated. Death will no longer be Oh, for that day. Paul continues to allude to the Old Testament in verse 55. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Hosea 13, 14, again, not a direct quote. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. Oh, death, where are your plagues? Oh, Sheol, where is your sting? These are some of the greatest questions in the Bible. Where is your victory, O death? Where is your sting, O death? Think about all of the faithful people during the old covenant who died and all those since then who have believed in Jesus Christ and have died. Every single time, death stung. And death had a victory. For centuries, death has been racking up wins. Every day, it racks up 150,000 wins. 
and it stings 150,000 times. Death entered the world through Adam, and it has been a formidable enemy ever since then. In the 1716 play, The Cobbler of Preston, one of the characters says, "'Tis impossible to be sure of anything but death and taxes." Not only does death sting those who die, but it also causes great pain for those who are left behind. And that's okay. Like even Paul, Paul welcomed death, right? He was relieved when Epaphroditus didn't die from his illness. Writing in Philippians 2.27, Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Paul was glad Epaphroditus didn't die. So by the way, when our loved ones in Christ die, it is okay to grieve. It is good to grieve. These days, we almost look at grief as if it's something that we shouldn't do. We have celebrations of life Instead of funerals, it's okay to acknowledge somebody's death as a terrible occasion. It is okay to mourn, and it is good to mourn with those who mourn. Don't rebuke somebody for mourning. Death has a sting. Death has a victory. Now, you might say that death has already been defeated in the death of Christ. Someone even wrote a book about it. And that's true, in a way. It's true in a way. 2 Timothy 1.10 says that Christ abolished death. And when he himself rose from the grave, he, in that way, was victorious over death. But this is just another one of those already but not yet realities. It's already but not yet. In one sense, yes, Christ has already defeated death. And in another sense, he will finally defeat death in one particular instance, when not only he is risen, but when all of his people are too. Verse 56 continues. Verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of the sin is law. It's helpful for us to look at Romans 5, 12 through 13 here. Here's what it says. Romans 5, 12 through 13. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. So, when Adam sinned, death came into the world through his sin, and death spread to all men because all sinned. Every single descendant of Adam has been born with a sinful nature. And because of that, we all die. We all sin, we all die. So without sin, death would have no sting. Death wouldn't even be a thing. But alas, there is sin in every person. Therefore, death still has its sting. And furthermore, that we have God's law makes us accountable to God's law. Earlier in the book of Romans, before chapter 5, Paul argued that Gentiles who didn't have the law per se were nonetheless accountable to the law because it was written on their hearts. And they proved that by their actions, right? And their consciences. Therefore, verse 56 of our passage, 1 Corinthians 15, the power of sin is the law. The law exposes our sinfulness, it exposes our guilt, and it gives sin its strength and dominion over humanity. Verse 57, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Jesus fulfilled the law for us. That law that gives power to sin, Jesus fulfilled. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. 
And because he did that, the law no longer condemns us. After living that perfect life on our behalf, he then took our sins on the cross. And having paid for them, sin no longer owns us. Sin no longer has dominion over us. Christ has defeated every sin. Cast all your burdens now on him. Oh, praise him. Oh, praise him. Alleluia. 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 And not only did Jesus achieve victory, but through him, God gives us the victory. God gives us the victory. Through Jesus Christ, we too are victorious over sin. Through Jesus Christ, we too are victorious over death. And God looks at us as if we ourselves have obeyed God's law perfectly. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. But again, the victory that we have is already but not yet. Already but not yet. In one sense, we're already victorious. We are more than conquerors. In another sense, we are not yet victorious because death still stings. Have you ever wondered, why is it so important that we have bodies in the eternal state? After all, when we die, our spirits go immediately to be with Jesus Christ. And our spirits, we start enjoying Him in a sinless, blissful state. What more could anyone want? I feel like wanting a body at that point is just greedy. The reason that the resurrection is so critical for our full redemption is that when Christians die, they are really dead. Their spirit lives on, yes. I want to make that very clear, because the last time I preached this passage, December of 2019, someone got confused and thought I was talking about soul sleep. No. When you die, the spirit does live on. You will enjoy the presence of God. But Christians in that state really are dead. When you talk to Roman Catholics and, and tell them that you're not really supposed to be talking to dead people, you shouldn't be asking dead people to intercede for you, which is what they're claiming that they're doing. We're not praying. We're just asking them to pray for us, is what they say. And the response is often that Christians in heaven aren't dead. That's what they'll say. They're more alive than they've ever been before. That's what they say, right? So they're not talking to the dead, they say. They're talking to the living. And it sounds great. It's just not true. It's just not true. The saints in heaven are conscious. They're happy. Happier than we have ever, ever been. But make no mistake, they are dead. They are. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 Those who rise first are called the dead in Christ. Those are the ones who will rise first. The dead in Christ. Earlier in our chapter, if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, it says, For as in Adam all die so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So what that means is that before the resurrection, we who have died will be dead. But at the resurrection, we will be made alive. Why are we emphasizing this so much? Why are we making such a big deal of this? It's because the bad news that we will be dead while we're in heaven makes way for the good news that one day we will be alive again. You get that? Like, if, you don't, if we don't grasp and embrace the idea that we're actually going to be dead in heaven, even though we're conscious, spirits, worshiping the Lord, even though we're going to be dead, if you don't embrace that, then you're going to miss out on the glorious anticipation of being made alive again. God has revealed to us that the way that he's going to be most glorified is not by leaving us as blissful, bodiless beings floating around in heaven. That's not his will. He will be most glorified when he fully reverses the fall of man, thus bringing our redemption to full completion. When Adam fell, 
He made it so that not only were all of his descendants sinful, but mortal. Now the cross reversed our sinfulness. The resurrection of the saints will reverse our mortality. You get that? The cross reversed our sinfulness. Our resurrection will reverse our mortality. So where the first Adam made us sinful and mortal, the second Adam will make us sinless and immortal. And if we are merely spirits for eternity, then we wouldn't be immortal per se. We would just be forever dead. We'd be happy, but we'd be dead. And that might be good enough for you, but that's not good enough for God, according to his eternal decree. His will is that not only would we be spiritually alive, but we would actually be alive forever and ever. So when our spirits are reunited with physical, eternal, and glorious bodies, and we're living on a new and a redeemed earth, God will have reversed the effects of the fall. God will be glorified because death will finally be defeated. You now see why I chose this passage for passages that have been most helpful. You see why the resurrection of the saints is so encouraging. If God had said that our sins would be forgiven and that we'd spend eternity with him in spirit forever, that would be amazing enough. That would still be amazing grace. Yet in his glory and his kindness, he has promised that there's even more grace coming. All those who die in Christ will be made alive again forever and ever. So what do we do with this? This leads us to number four, the application. The application, labor for God with all of this in mind. Labor for God with all of this in mind. This is just in verse 58. Verse 58 says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So that word therefore in verse 58 means that what he's just said logically should lead to what follows. After he addresses them as his beloved brothers, he encourages them to be steadfast. Be steadfast. It means to stand firm, to be strong, to be unwavering in faith and your commitment to God. The next word is very similar. Verse 58, immovable. And they're essentially synonyms here that reinforce each other but perhaps there's an internal and an external dynamic okay you're steadfast from the inside you're immovable from the outside you're resolved in heart and nothing can move you from the outside imagine if if one of the kids came up here and let me give them a shove they'd probably stumble they'd probably fall over right but if let's say Michael Pope, you guys know who he is? Like, he's, he's very strong. Michael Pope came up here and let me, let me give him a shove. I'd probably fall over, right? I'd probably stumble backwards. Michael Pope is strong. He's steadfast. He's immovable. That is how we should be spiritually in light of our hope of our, our future resurrection. How does that follow? Why should the hope of our resurrection make us steadfast? Why should the hope of our resurrection make us immovable? It's because of what is said at the end of the verse. It's not in vain. It's not in vain. With existential nihilism, the idea that nothing has any kind of meaning, it's all meaningless. Why do anything? If you're just another animal of a species, that isn't special from any other species and probably is just going to end up extinct one day, why do anything? Or if all of our existence is in this life only, why not just live it up however we want? It's not going to matter anyway. But that's not reality. The reality, dear friends, brothers and sisters who believe in Christ, is that we will live forever we will actually be alive again in spirit 
and body forever and ever. So it's not pointless for us to be steadfast and living for Christ. It's not vain for us to be immovable. Not only should we be steadfast and immovable, but we should also be, uh, verse 58, abounding in the work of the Lord. Abounding in the work of the Lord. The work of the Lord is a really broad term that can include really any work that honors God, that serves his purposes, builds up his kingdom, etc. It could be preaching, it could be teaching, it could be evangelizing, discipling, counseling, praying, worshiping, giving, serving, helping, just loving others in the name of Christ. In the context of 1 Corinthians specifically, that would include using your spiritual gifts for each other in love. So all of this is what is encompassed in the phrase in verse 58, the work of the Lord. And verse 58 says about the work of the Lord that we should always be abounding in it. We should always be abounding in the work of the Lord. So this is a challenge for us. You see, all of us are going to acknowledge that we should serve the Lord. Anyone deny that we should serve the Lord? Of course not. But can we all say that we're abounding in it? Would you describe yourself as someone who is working for the Lord abundantly? Is serving Christ and his bride central to your existence? Or is it more extracurricular? Or, or let's say that you were to divide up your waking moments in the day into two categories. One of them is working for the Lord and the other one is other. What would that ratio be for you? Listen, I'm a pastor full time and this is still convicting to me. This is still convicting to me. How much of our time is sucked away by distractions, by recreation, by media, by sports, by hobbies, etc. All of those things are gifts from God that ought to be enjoyed by us, and the enjoyment of them unto God isn't a waste of time. But with that said, he has left us with work to do. We are creatures that are not only meant for rest, but also work. May God help us to grow in such a way that we can say that by the grace of God, we are always abounding in the work of the Lord. That First Baptist Church of the Lakes is made up of Christ followers who are always busy for God. But again, why? Why live like that? Verse 58, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Our working for the Lord has eternal consequences. It is through the hard work of the church that God brings more and more people into his kingdom, as the Holy Spirit calls. It is through the hard work of the church that we all grow in Christ daily and we persevere together to the very end. That takes work. We are not in peacetime. We are at war. We will one day be the church triumphant, but right now we are the church militant. And we have work to do. But God uses that work. He uses that work to accomplish his sovereign ends. And one of his sovereign ends, the one that motivates us greatly from this passage, is that at the last trumpet, the dead in Christ will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. And we will inherit our eternal and imperishable inheritance and death will be destroyed. Our labor is what God may use to add to that number being raised imperishable. Our labor is what God uses to bring his people to that very end. In the Lord, your labor is not in vain. It's not. Therefore, labor for God with all of that in mind. Always be abounding in the work of the Lord, steadfast, immovable, with all of this in mind. Having a view of the resurrection of the saints will help us to be steadfast, immovable, 
and always abounding in the work of the Lord. So, we have a problem. We cannot enter the eternal state with these bodies, but God has the answer. We're going to be transformed. The result? Death will finally be defeated. And the application? Labor for God with all of this in mind. What else can we do with this information? Four quick things. Number one, you probably guessed it. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. The hope that we've just described is reserved only for those who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ. All those who die not believing in Jesus will, in fact, still be raised in the end, but not for eternal life. Instead, they will experience eternal judgment in their spirits and bodies. And God is going to be just and right in doing so. But he loved the world in such a way that he gave his only son so that rather than just doling out judgment on all, he has instead extended a worldwide invitation for you to be forgiven and saved through faith in Jesus Christ. So put your faith in him. That's number one. Number two of four, meditate on these things and get back to work. There are seasons in this Christian life when either we experience discouragement or complacency. God has given us this doctrine as an encouragement for us. This life is just a vapor. We're going to live again. We're going to live again. So let's use all of our time wisely in service to our Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that in him our labor is not in vain. Thirdly, praise the Lord for these things. Praise him for these things. The list of attributes and works for which God is worthy of our praise is long. And this certainly belongs on it. When was the last time you praised God that he's going to resurrect all of his people in the end, thus destroying death? Technically, you probably did it in the sermon. But what about before that, right? May we consider this reality more frequently and praise God accordingly. And then finally, number four, Remind your brothers and sisters of these things. If you, like me, have found this passage and this doctrine encouraging and emboldening, guess what? Your brothers and your sisters need it too. So yeah, point back to the cross. Absolutely point back to the cross, but also point forward to their resurrection and their glorification. Both of those are given to us by God as motivations to keep moving forward for our good and for his glory. So may we not be hopeless people, but people hopeful of the end, eternal life, true life in spirit and in body, in the new heavens and the new earth with our Savior Jesus forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this hope, this assurance. Oh, come, Lord Jesus. And we ask, Lord, that while we labor here, if you will tarry, help us to have a hope fixed on what you have promised us in the end. Help us to realize, O oh Lord, that while our outer selves are wasting away, that our inner selves are being renewed day by day. Help us to finish strong. Help us to never let up in this life, knowing, O oh Lord, that we will not be dead forever, but that when you return, we will be alive again to live with you forever and ever. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.